Hello. Hi, is this Brenda? Yes. Hi, Brenda. It's Mike from VT Digger. How are you doing? I'm good. This is Brenda Field. I called her back in early February from a call recording app. I saw an unknown caller, and I thought for a minute, well, you're either the state police or a scammer. <laughs> and you're neither, so I guess I owe you a couple of answers. <laughs> <laughs> Brenda's the emergency management director in Tunbridge. Early last year, she was enjoying her retirement after decades as a firefighter with the Vermont Air National Guard. I'd go up for a 24-hour shift from Tunbridge and then come back for 48 hours. And it was probably really hard for the Air Guard at first because, you know, they never had a woman there before sleeping in the bunk room with them. She left about five years ago, took up wood carving as a hobby. And for a while, she had been helping a group of local officials revise the town's emergency plan. And the pandemic hit. And we sort of rolled right into that, uh, that whole structure that we were setting up. We, we just kind of used it. And it was a little bit of a shock that it was to do with a pandemic. <laughs> so for me, as it unfolded, I've been working with the fire chief, with the select board, with the health officer, you know, everybody all in the pool. And we just kept our fingers in it. And for a while, for months actually, my day started off with a call from the head of the select board with the cows mooing in the background as he get, got ready to milk. <laughs> <laughs> and we went over what was needed. Last March, what was needed the most was information. Brenda said cell service and broadband in Tunbridge is hit or miss, so they had to go analog. They got funding to set up an LED road sign in the village to flash messages about COVID. And then Brenda would just go talk to people. The rest of it, believe it or not, has been me at the dump. Almost everybody has to go to the dump. Wow, so you would just kind of go post up there? Well, I'd go, at first we were going there talking to everybody for quite a while. We had to figure out a different way. The town offices, we closed down. So how do we sell dump tickets? Supposed to be calling it the recycling center. Excuse me. <laughs> so we ended up being down there in person with masks on, standing back from the cars. And we're a small town. So I think people were pretty appreciative to have a face they could either agree with, thank, or say, you know, this is all a hoax. <laughs> what, what types of, you know, incidents would you be responding to? You know, when you talk about other needs that the town might have related to COVID, what, what were those needs looking like? Well, for us in a small town, it really was the town offices, communication, keeping everybody in the loop what was going on. Could do they all have masks? We have an older population. Are they okay? Our neighbors helping neighbors in town pretty much called everybody they could think of that might be living alone and older and touch base with each one of them to make sure that they had what they needed. Remember, in the beginning, we were learning how to do things. You know, they need shopping done, that they need to go to the, before the hospitals were even shut down. Just a little bit of a learning curve, just kind of like touching everybody in town. Are you okay? What do you need? What do you need to know? Some version of this was happening in communities across the state. Local officials and volunteers sprang into action. Mutual aid groups blossomed. People made piles of face masks. They gave away bread and vegetables and 3D printed protective gear for health workers. It was this massive outpouring of community support. Brenda said the challenge now is keeping that spirit alive a year after the crisis first began. Because this 
pandemic isn't like, you know, an active shooter in our school behavior where you have an intense period of time and then you recover, go through the recovery process. It's been a long kind of quiet, stay-in-a-place thing. You know, like I said, it's not been anything big and glorifying fire that we're dealing with that gets a lot of stuff and then we get over it. This has just been a long, steady communicate, communicate, hang in there. We can keep doing this. The pandemic didn't reach Vermont on a specific date. But right now, we're a year out from those first moments that it started to become clear that a crisis was coming. Over the past few weeks, VT Digger reporters have interviewed dozens of Vermonters about how they've coped during this crisis, how they've grieved, and how they've changed. Nearly all of them have said something like Brenda, that they never expected we would still be facing the same challenges a year after we started. But on the other hand, every person has had their own unique experience of the pandemic. And every person has their own unique reason they want it to end. We'll be right back. Just a quick message from our underwriters. Efficiency Vermont helps you reduce your heating bills by offering recommendations and rebates on weatherization projects, wood stoves, heat pumps, and more. Find qualified Efficiency Excellence Network contractors at efficiencyvermont.com slash contractor. Before COVID, the last major disaster in Vermont was in 2011, when Tropical Storm Irene caused severe flood damage across the state. Experts say Irene helped Vermont prepare for the next disaster, but a pandemic requires a different kind of emergency response. After Irene, we were given a list of people who were affected and we'd go to their house, knock on the door and talk to them. This pandemic is so different because it's everyone. It's you, it's me, it's everyone. Everyone is affected. And I think the thing that's so important to remember is that we're not just that we're all in it and let's all hold hands and figure it out, but that we're all in it and we're really struggling with the stressors, even if we don't think that we are. So... I guess I'd like people to cut themselves a little bit of slack. Dr. Kath Burns is the clinical director for COVID Support VT, a crisis counseling program that launched last summer with federal relief funding. She said that wave of community support we saw at the onset of the pandemic was something you see in lots of disasters. But this crisis is different in a couple important ways. One is that universality. Everyone is affected by it. The other is what we're feeling right now, the longevity. In any kind of a system, when something happens, you have this normal recovery curve where, like, the event happens. So if you imagine sort of emotional highs and lows, and an event happens, like, boom, and everybody rallies and tries to deal with the event, you know, they're like, we can get through this. And then you go through this period of people just hitting the pits, feeling bad, thinking, oh, my God, this is never going to get better. And then over time, what we know is that people start to improve. And then, you know, they develop what people like to call a new normal. And that model is based on this idea that there's an event and that which has a clear start and end like a hurricane or a death or something. And then people kind of rally, struggle and come out of it. With this one, we don't necessarily have a clear start. We sort of do. We knew when the virus was coming March 13th. I remember the day when, the, when I knew where I was when I heard the governor say Vermont's in a state of emergency. And that's sort of a starting point. And there was that rallying period. But this, this period of disillusionment of people struggling is just prolonged because people are going, oh, my God, will this ever end? Like, it's not like after the flood when your house is rebuilt or, you know, when 
your family's able to move. It's, it's, it's just not clear what the end will look like. We're all kind of trying to figure that out together. And so I am seeing a lot of just general, there's just a lot of fatigue around, oh my gosh, this is so hard. One of the biggest challenges for the entire state during the onset of the pandemic was figuring out where the virus actually was and how it was spreading. Testing for COVID was brand new, and most of the work fell to one site, the State Health Laboratory in Colchester. Our, our primary role is surveillance, outbreak detection, things like that. So we're not a high-throughput clinical lab. Typically, in a normal year, as a whole for the lab, we probably process 30 to 35,000 tests. And for COVID, just including COVID, we've processed 121,000 tests. So that's far more than what we're ever used to. <laughs> Christine Matusevich is the lab's microbiology unit coordinator. I am involved in the testing and overseeing the area and the workflow. 23 years strong here. Just had my anniversary. Before COVID, Christine and her team ran tests for all kinds of infectious diseases. And when the new virus appeared, they trained about six people to run tests for it. But within days, they essentially dropped their work on other diseases. She said COVID needed all hands on deck. It's funny, I was going through uh, my emails just because I, you know, everything is a blur. And I didn't realize how much had actually happened here in such a short time frame. March 3rd is when we received our first specimens. By March 19th, we had 19 specimens. And then on the 20th, we had 38 samples. That was like our biggest day ever. <laughs> and then it kind of spiraled out of control. <laughs> um, the sample volume started uh, going like to 50, 60, 80. 140. And, you know, this is, this is a lab that, like I said, we don't have the instrumentation for high throughput. We were doing all of the testing manually, you know, with our own hands and our own staff. We had no machines to process the samples, but the manual method is just so labor intensive and tiring. We were just so tired. <laughs> it was crazy. And we just all of a sudden were starting to test seven days a week, you know, 10, 14 hour days. And it was it was just so amazing how quickly everything ramped up. I mean, literally like in two weeks, we went from zero to 1000 miles an hour. <laughs> the lab got swept up in the messy federal response, which left states competing against each other for supplies. It was amazing. Like the first week, the second week, everything was bought up. Everybody panicked. All, you know, I'm saying like, all the testing facilities in the United States are like, holy cow, we need to buy everything that we can. And that's exactly what happened. And we tried to place orders for the kits that we needed, and they just weren't available. Anytime you tried to order something, even if they said it was in stock, once you went to place the order, they're like, sorry, we just allocated that to someone else. Literally, it was like right here, and now it's gone. <laughs> You know, we all take pride in our work here, and that's the reason why we work in public health, um, because we care about the health of the public. And so when you don't have the tools that you need to do your job and you know you need to get this job done, it's incredibly frustrating. The feds eventually came through, and the lab ramped back up. But the pace of testing stayed high throughout the year. Christine said it took a toll, emotionally and physically. We thought that this was going to be over in a month, maybe two months max. You know, we never dreamed it would be going on for six months, eight months, 12 months. 
by um, July, we actually started having stress-related injuries because we were, even though we had some automated equipment, we were still using people to add samples to plates and then put it into the automated instrument. And by then we were, we were starting to feel it in our hands and our shoulders. I, I wasn't as bad as some other people. Like some people, I didn't realize it because no one said anything because they didn't want to say anything because they didn't want to stop working. One person finally said that, yeah, I go home every night and I have to ice my wrists because they hurt so bad. For me, I was starting to feel it in my wrists and my shoulder. Like I, I would go in my car after work and I would, you know how sometimes you have the window down and you put your arm on the door. I couldn't even do that because it hurt so bad. And I was actually getting worried. I'm like, oh my God, if I can't do my job, that's bad. You know, I want to do my job. <laughs> I want to keep doing this. Despite all this, Christine's team has kept going. And for once, the public has actually paid attention to their work. Before COVID, people, most people, even into COVID, didn't even realize that there was a public health lab. When people would ask, if I would say, yeah, I do COVID testing. I'm like, oh, you work for the hospital? No, I work for the state public health lab. Oh, where's that? What, what do you do? Well, you know, they had no idea of our existence. The fact that we were the only testing lab for six weeks, it, it actually, it felt good that we were needed and it felt good. I mean, we had people stopping in and providing food for us and they had, we had kids making a sign saying, you know, not all superheroes wear capes and we still have those signs hanging up outside of director's office and we walk by them every day and I read it every day. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's really nice of them to, to, to make that. So <clears throat> it was nice to finally be recognized for once. For Peter Carmoli, the urge to help his neighbors started before the pandemic. In March of last year, he was just five months into running a new food shelf in South Burlington. A lot of people think South Burlington is such an affluent community that, you know, we don't need a food shelf. But that's, I mean, anyone who lives in Chittenden County knows the salaries don't match the housing costs here. And it's just a very difficult thing. It's between one out of four, or one out of five families or students in the school is on free and reduced lunch. And that's the state average. So, you know, we're, we're right there with everyone else. So that's how it started. And it just building meetings, meetings, meetings. And then we found a place we opened in, on November 1st, 2019, and we were just learning really what to do at that time. Thankfully, we did. The timing couldn't have been better or worse, depending on your perspective. Tens of thousands of Vermonters lost work in the pandemic, and rates of food insecurity shot up. Peter said at his food shelf alone, they've helped about 400 households since they opened. They give out between 70 and 80 pounds of food and supplies to every person who shows up. So I meet the customer outside the door. I'm in a mask, they're masked, and I stay a good six feet away from him. So I'm outside. I get their name and address and any particular information that we keep. And then we pack, we prepack everything and bring it out for them. The thing Peter has noticed is that many of these people have never needed assistance before. And what they're looking for is more than just food. The people that are coming in, a lot of them are so, so embarrassed that, oh my God, I've never had to use a food shelf before. One person says, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you. I'll pay you for all of this. I just got to get back on my feet. And I try to explain to everyone, no, that's, that's not how this works. Don't worry about that. Everyone needs help now. And that's why we're here. Everyone needs help every once in a while. I guess the big challenge is 
to try and stay safe and healthy. You know, we are social animals and we want to talk to people. We want to see how they're doing. You know, it's, it's someone comes to the food shelf, they need food, but sometimes they also need to talk. And there's a lot more to just helping out by giving them the items they need. I mean, you need, sometimes they just need that contact and they want to chat regardless. It could be about any little thing. So many people have no contacts and the, the mental health aspect is something that you have to keep in mind along with the physical health. You want to, you want to sometimes give somebody a hug and you, you can't do that and that's the number one thing they need is a big hug and that's it you know um that's hard i absolutely love meeting families and i love knowing that we had a part of you know helping them celebrate a life michelle imbersino is also used to hugging the people she works with Michelle is a funeral director at the Reedy Funeral Home in Burlington. She said her work has completely changed without physical contact. The hardest part for me during the pandemic is I can't hug everybody. And I have always hugged my families after arrangements, after services. And that's, that's really tough. Back in early March, Michelle was out of the country on a family trip. She got back just before cases started to pop up around Vermont. I had heard about it and I knew what was going on, but when we landed in Atlanta, I was like, well, this is not a big deal. They're not asking us any questions. They're not doing health screenings. They're not, you know, none of that. We, you know, came to Burlington and, you know, everyone, we thought it was, it was, you know, going to pass at Vermont. I'm like, how bad can it possibly be? And I think within a week's time, things just went off the rails. You're starting to hear all of these cases. There were cases in nursing homes. Kind of overnight, we had to look at how we were doing things and how we were planning on keeping our staff safe. And when the first death occurred, we actually, we were the, were the funeral home that went on the first call for the first death that occurred. We, we weren't really, you know, sure what, you know, what to expect. For Michelle and her team, it turned out that was just the beginning. Pretty much everything about our work has changed. It's a business that is built on hugs and love and compassion and togetherness and being able to, you know, express how you're feeling or families are feeling for others. And we literally had to change overnight to doing things remotely. It changed significantly how we met with families, how we talked with families. It changed how we entered nursing homes, how we entered someone's home. You know, everything about it changed. It really was heartbreaking for the families. It was heartbreaking to watch their pain and to know that they weren't getting the closure that we so desperately try and bring them was, was really hard. It was hard to watch families go through that. Michelle said the home is now back to providing some in-person services, but their work is still far from normal. I could not believe how long this was lasting. Um, I, I never in a million years would have imagined that a year later we'd be talking about this. Um, for me, it was tough because I had, you know, my kids saying, uh, for me, I was always like, just a few more weeks, you'll be back in school, just, you know, a few more weeks. And then finally I had to say, I don't know what to tell you anymore because I've never lived in, through a pandemic before. So this is all new to me too. 
the longevity of the crisis has been especially visible in the past few months. Vermont's second wave of COVID infections started in October, and we're still fighting it today. The biggest toll has been in nursing homes. There have been more than 30 long-term care outbreaks during the fall and winter. Partly as a result, more Vermonters died from COVID in December than in the first nine months of the pandemic combined. Delaney Partlow started working at Four Seasons Care Home in Northfield about two months before the outbreak there began. November, all of our residents got COVID and multiple staff. And so, like, we had to do direct care with COVID. And it was just, it was intense. Delaney was 16. She had decided before the pandemic that she wanted to work in healthcare. Her grandmother was an LNA at a nursing home for 30 years. And Delaney is thinking about becoming a gynecologist. She thought working at Four Seasons would be a learning experience. I'm a PCA, so I pretty much do LNA work without the license. So I perform care on residents, but I also like clean and like serve meals. So I kind of do everything. Delaney lives with her mom, who has a weakened immune system. Once the outbreak started, Delaney worried she would bring the virus home. We had a resident, he was admitted to the hospital for like stroke-like symptoms. And while he was at the hospital, they tested him for COVID because that's what they're doing now, I guess. It was a rapid test and those are like known for false positives. So we got alerted when it came back positive, but we're like, but there's a high chance that it's like false. But then they did another test and it was positive. And I just remember I was like, oh my God, I performed care on him the other day, like direct contact. Like I worked a 10 hour shift yesterday and he was there. And the residents, they don't have to wear masks because they're like, they never leave. And so then my like, instant worry was like, oh, what about all of our other residents? Like, they're so close. They don't wear masks because what's the point? And it was just a lot of worrying. And I'm like freaking out about myself and about all the other residents and if everyone's going to be okay and what it's going to look like. It was really crazy and nerve wracking. We were doing testing two times a week, every Wednesday morning and every Saturday morning. And every single time there was just more positives and more positives. I was lucky I didn't get it the whole time. I stayed negative, but like all the residents except one got it. And I think two thirds of our staff got it. It was just positive after positives and everyone was just freaking out and worrying. But we had to like stay calm at the same time. There is many people who didn't want to work at all. So I had to pick up like multiple extra shifts, mm-hmm. even though I didn't want to go in, somebody had to do the work. So I just let it go and I took extra shifts. Delaney still works at Four Seasons. She said the outbreak taught her that healthcare workers have to expect the unexpected. It just like, it made me realize that healthcare workers can really go through anything. And you have to prepare for the worst. Like when I started working there, I didn't expect everybody to get COVID. And I didn't expect to have to work like firsthand with it. There was definitely, while I was working, there was definitely regrets. Like, why am I doing this? Why do I even want to like go into this field? Like, this is horrible. But then I remembered that it happens and you just got to like push through. 
because eventually it'll be gone and there will be hard times in any career and with healthcare it's tricky because it's really unpredicted you don't really know what's going to happen like nobody knew that covid would be this big of a deal so there's no way people could have been like oh well we'll do this and this won't happen i know that it's going to be unpredictable and it's going to be challenging but there's really nothing that can be done about it because you can't really we can't just take covid away overnight you've probably seen stories over the past year about how successful vermont has been at fighting covid we've maintained some of the lowest rates of infection and death of anywhere in the country and news outlets from around the globe have taken notice Dr. Anthony Fauci even called into a state press conference in September and said Vermont should be a model for the country. That's thanks in part to people like Brenda, Kath, Christine, Peter, Michelle, and Delaney, who've spent the year trying to help their communities through an unprecedented crisis. But there's also a contradiction baked into these stories of Vermont's success, that the more we've done to prevent illness and death, the more our day-to-day lives have been upended. Avoiding COVID has caused incalculable stress for students, for the elderly and disabled, for people who suddenly lost their jobs or businesses. Not to mention the friends and families of the more than 200 Vermonters who've died from COVID. Next week, we'll hear more from them, the survivors, about how they're faring after a year of crisis. Stay tuned. You're listening to a special VT Digger podcast as part of our Virus in Vermont series. We're highlighting dozens of different perspectives on the pandemic and stories throughout the month of March. You can find the full series at vtdigger.org virus. Our weekly podcast is The Deeper Dig. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll hear new episodes as soon as they land. I'm Mike Doherty. I produce this piece along with interviews by Justin Trombley, Katie Jickling, and Nora Peachin. We use music by Blue Dot Sessions. Come back next week for part two. Thanks for listening.